This month, The Spectator becomes the first magazine in history to print 10,000 issues, and we'd like to celebrate with you. Subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of commemorative Spectator gin, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. I'm recording this introduction standing on the steps of a locked church. They're not hard to find. Every Catholic and Anglican church is locked. And these locked doors, that's me knocking on it, have become the symbol of what critics increasingly say is the church's lamentable failure to respond properly to the COVID epidemic. And more than that, these doors are a symbol for a bureaucratic mindset, general control freakery, and a disturbing inability to tell the truth by not just the Catholic bishops of England and Wales, but the Church of England as well. We've discussed this before on Holy Smoke, but that was in the early days of the pandemic, and to an extent the jury was still out. Well, when I talk to my priest friends and my many church-going friends, I get the sense that the jury is back. And this sense was confirmed last week when a 7,000-word email arrived in my inbox, written by one Flora MacDonald, clearly a pseudonym, somebody using Proton Mail. That's a high-security email service, which means they don't want to be discovered. And this huge missive addressed to the bishops of England and Wales, the Catholic ones, accused them of betraying the faithful in their desperate rush to go online rather than meet the faithful, even under strictly controlled hygienic conditions. It accused the Catholic bishops of jumping the gun and actually going to the government and demanding that the government close Catholic churches, thus aping the attitude of the Church of England, which doesn't even allow its own vicars to pray in their churches. This email asked why the Catholic Church in England and Wales took this preemptive initiative on the advice of Jim McManus, public health expert with no medical qualifications. And it also drew attention to the silence of the Catholic bishops over the government's decision to relax the rules on DIY abortions at home. This week I'm joined again by Dr Gavin Ashenden, who, although now a Catholic, has been an Anglican chaplain to the Queen and also a bishop in an independent Anglican church. He said on this podcast a few weeks ago, memorably, that Archbishop Justin Welby's advice to wash your hands and be nice wasn't enough in the circumstances. And that was before this ferocious lockdown, the decision that private prayer was a health threat, whose most enthusiastic proponents were not politicians, but the bishops themselves. And so I'm going to ask Gavin about the wider culture of suffocating, finger-wagging, virtue-signaling, right-on bureaucracy that seems to have extinguished the missionary spirit of the men wearing mitres. Oh, and one more thing. The priest who locked this door didn't want to do so. He doesn't think the banning of private prayer in churches is remotely justified. And now Holy Smoke's outside broadcast unit has moved back to its high-tech studio in my front room. And I'm about to ask Dr Gavin Ashenden, who I know has read the Samizdat Flora MacDonald email, what he makes of this devastating critique which, as I say, has implications for the Church of England as well as the Catholic Church. 
First, some direct quotes from the document. It says, There is a misleading narrative circulating on Dyson websites and aired by some of you in public broadcasts that by closing churches even to solitary prayer, you are merely following government instructions. Some of you, including at the most senior levels, continue to pretend publicly that this decision was made at the insistence of the government. Why the prevarications and confusing messages and distortions? It raises serious questions about integrity. You had your role to play in the amendments to government guidance. To try and camouflage it only intensifies the growing breach of trust between you and what will remain of the church post-lockdown. Have you thought about how your decision to effectively shut down priestly ministry affects the morale of priests? Was it really necessary to hurt them in this manner with your extreme measures, which hardly any other, if any, bishop's conference in the world has adopted? Why has the bishop's conference remained silent on the horrifying relaxation of abortion rules during the lockdown, which provide for DIY at-home abortions without any kind of parliamentary debate or scrutiny? To all bishops who may have been surprised by the Cardinal and Bishops' Conference's decisions to lobby for church closures for private prayer, and who don't necessarily agree with it, why do you remain silent, at least publicly? Why do you allow a Bishops' Conference bureaucratic machinery to usurp your canonical right to govern your diocese? And the Flora MacDonald email concludes, there is a reign of fear and heavy-handedness. Bishops' Conference officials are very skilled at pretending there is unanimity or consensus among bishops when there is not. It ends, the reverberations of your decision to influence the government in closed churches, even to private prayer, will be felt not just for years, but for generations to come. And I should add that the response of the Bishops' Conference was merely to say that they will review the situation as it develops. Gavin. What do you make of it? I'm very grateful for it. It's written very clearly, as you say. It's informed and cogent. I think there are three areas that are brought into focus here. One is a geopolitical one, one is a political one, and one's an existential one. So the geopolitical one is here we have, for the first time, certainly in this country since 1208, churches closed by the government. Geopolitically, because this has happened in the world during this last century, but it only happened at the hands of totalitarian regimes. And I think one of the things that's thrown all of us is that we've now had the same effect being brought about by, by the political arm, uh, the executive, it's true, but, but not because of any animus towards the church, but because of fear of a virus. So the first question is, here at the geopolitical level, is something profoundly threatening that's really quite hard to deal with because... Essentially, we're responding in the way that we are in order to save lives, we think. Then there's a political area, which is how the bishops' conference is run. And as you've quite rightly said, there's an agenda there, as there is in so many committees. It's clearly being run in a fairly iron-fisted way. The third area is the existential area, and that is this dreadful sense of abandonment that ordinary Christians in the pews have. And I think I now count myself as one of them. And the fact that one has been taught throughout one's whole life, both as an Anglican and as a Catholic, to rely upon the sacraments, and to have them withdrawn by the bishops rather than the government, leaves one with a sense of, of abandonment and betrayal. Flora MacDonald quite rightly refers to that passage in Ezekiel where 
the Lord is very cross with those who have responsibility for shepherding Israel because they've turned out to be false shepherds. It's very hard to avoid the feeling that we are being served, at least in terms of, of committees, by false shepherds. What exactly? The committees? The bloody committees? I mean, can you imagine St Paul writing to the Corinthians or whoever and saying, we need to spread the word of the Lord. Can you please set up a committee to study best practice? That's the mindset of the bishops of England and Wales and Lambeth Palace as well. And it has been for a long time. I remember my first meeting with Cardinal Nichols when he was still Father Vincent Nichols, Monsignor Vincent Nichols, General Secretary of the Bishops' Conference. Now, this was nearly 30 years ago, and I went along to one of their press conferences after the bishops had met, and it was presided over by Vin. And I didn't know who this young Monsignor was, but he sat there preening. They were all preening about the fact that the bishops had agreed to send themselves on a racism awareness course, no doubt involving workshops. I mean, there have to be workshops. And there was this stream of jargon. And after the press conference, I went up to Monsignor Nichols and I said, oh, for God's sake, this racism awareness stuff is so out of date. And this was 1991. It was already out of date by then. I said, it'll get you absolutely nowhere. James Bartholomew hadn't invented the phrase virtue signalling by then, but that's what it was, virtue signalling. And I implored Nichols to do something else, that this was a waste of time. And it was like talking to, well, a locked church door. But it's the triumph of this bureaucratic mentality that, for me, epitomises secularisation as it's experienced by the churches, because I think secularisation from within is really more of a threat than secularisation from without. And you couldn't have a better example of it than the bishops actually going to the government and saying, you know, shut us down. Health and safety equality and diversity, as soon as they hear these words, they genuflect. And when they talk about these things, it's not even good health and safety advice, as we've seen. Their grasp of politics, economics, sociology is incredibly superficial, incredibly reliant on jargon, very biased. I mean, look at the Pope's call for a universal basic income on Easter Sunday of all days. Is this Christianity? I mean, I'm not saying you won't hear Christianity preached from the average parish church. Of course you will. And individual bishops preach the gospel too, or their version of the gospel. But as soon as they speak collectively, the supernatural flies out of the window. Yes, I agree. I, I think you're right in raising in the category of the supernatural. And so I suppose what we might do is we might say that the, the two avenues of approach are the social versus the supernatural. And so church leaders, uh, church theologians, intellectuals, pastors, priests have been trained as part of their training to be competent socially and politically, the whole health and safety culture. But there's been this great fear of the supernatural during the whole of this last century, partly, of course, because it's badly abused by people who have a, a poor hold on it and make spurious claims. But the fact is that Christianity is based on supernaturalism, and at the same time, there's a very close link between holiness and the supernatural. And again, one of the things that's happened during the last 70 years or so is that we've become far more adept at the political than we have at holiness. 
the whole purity tradition has diminished and been, been hidden. So here we have a, a lot of pressure from secular organizations to get the church leaders to be literate in, in psychology, health and safety, inclusion, the, the whole paraphernalia of contemporary modernity. And at the same time, to be priests, to be theologians, to be bishops, they ought to be familiar and competent in the areas of purity, holiness and the supernatural. But they're not. And I think what they're really doing is stretching out for a handrail to keep themselves safe in a time of turbulence. So suddenly here we are in a moment of, of pandemic. It's shaking everything, the whole of our society. It's shaking the church. And in their fear, there's fear everywhere, but in their fear, our leaders are reaching out for the social, the pragmatic, the empirical, rather than the supernatural. And in so doing, they're, they're turning their back on the core of what the faith is all about and leaving people feeling very abandoned. Because after all, they, they, that's the message, isn't it? The message is, we don't know about the supernatural. We do know about the political. But if we don't know about the supernatural, why should you know? This is a very difficult message to hear for individual good priests, whether in the Catholic Church or the Church of England. They know that they can safely administer the sacraments if they take the necessary, quite strict precautions, but they're not allowed to do so. And they're not even allowed to say in public what they think, because if they do so, they face very severe censure, possibly even the suspension of their ministries at some stage. I had two priests tell me that they couldn't come on this podcast because the punishment would be so severe. I think priests uh, have been placed in an immensely difficult position because they're bound, first of all, by vows of obedience that are enormously important, not just as vows, but as a but as a quality of spiritual integrity. And at the same time, they face issues of conscience. And this is one of those meltdown situations that everyone wants to avoid, if at all possible, an enormously important ethical value like a vow of obedience. And the fact that one becomes increasingly ill at ease and be believing that there's a serious issue of impropriety or injustice at stake. The difficulty I have is that the managers of the churches can't easily say they're relying on fact. One of the things we've discovered in the last few weeks is that although the coronavirus stays on surfaces and is evident there, its capacity for infecting people on surfaces is, is seriously diminished. It's nothing like what people thought it was at the beginning. We've discovered that the, the, the facts, the science of infection, is profoundly contested. And I, I think the really difficult thing, the existentially difficult thing, is that we could have coped in a way with the government saying we're going to close all the churches in order to fulfil our political responsibilities as we see them. And then the issue of conscience would have been with the government. And I think priests would have, wouldn't have had a great deal of trouble saying, well, I'm going to break the law. That's, you know, that's, there was always going to be a point where as a Christian, I might have to break secular law. This is it. But when the government said the churches can stay open and then the bishops or their representative, if it was Mr. McManus said, no, no, it's your duty to close them. That puts the clergy in the most dreadful position because it puts them against their bishops. And in order to be true to their consciences, they have to break a vow of obedience. I think this is profoundly difficult. And I'm not surprised that they've found themselves in a difficult public position because at the same time, they have all their responsibilities to, to, to their flock and all the anxieties that being in a period of pandemic produces. I have a lot of sympathy with the clergy and I'm deeply sorry they've been put in this position. Now, this Fiona MacDonald email 
and we don't know who Fiona MacDonald is, one priest said to me, I bet it's Father Fiona MacDonald, i.e. some well-connected priest. This email was addressed to the Catholic Bishops' Conference in an attempt not just to draw attention to their mismanagement of this situation, but also simply to discover the truth. And they're not telling us. But the situation in the Church of England isn't really any clearer, is it? I was very distressed indeed to watch the Archbishop of Canterbury being interviewed by Andrew Marr on television because all the messages that came down through the churches and the messages that made the clergy lament publicly were that they were under a three-line whip, a very strict order not to open the churches and some archdeacons threatened clergy disciplinary measures and so on. And yet when it came to a public interrogation and Andrew Marr said to the Archbishop, what do you think you're doing? The Archbishop backtracked and said, oh, no, no, you misunderstand. This was just general advice, guidance. Well, it really wasn't. <laughs> that just wasn't true. And and that introduces a whole new level of complexity when it comes to trusting those who are in positions of responsibility. And And again, to have that as the moral dilemma weighing upon the clergy and then their congregations, I think was a very, very difficult thing indeed. So this distinction between whether or not there was a three-line whip, it was an order, or whether it was merely advice that the clergy were free to accept or disregard, uh, that's a very problematic confusion, and I don't think we're being told the truth. Well, I can't say that I'm surprised, because in my long experience as a reporter on religious affairs, I'm sorry to say that the spokesmen for bishops, or bishops themselves, tend to be no more truthful, and sometimes less truthful, than the spokesmen for politicians or government bodies. And I don't think ordinary churchgoers or the general public are aware of this. Or perhaps it has taken this crisis to reveal that there is something profoundly wrong with the way the churches are organised. I think in a way, this is part of what I meant by saying that I, I think we're at a useful crossroads because what you've described is exactly this bifurcation between the pious and the political. So being afraid of piety, being unskilled in piety and holiness and the supernatural, our church leaders have, have set out for the political. The trouble with politicians is they do tell lies and they, they do work with a very finely honed uh, textbook of situation ethics where they go for the least worst solution uh, and integrity takes a hit. So um, I think one of the things that this may do, and I, I hope very much it will galvanise the people of God, all people of faith, to say this is not the way we want to do the church, so not the way we want to be Christians. We want a greater emphasis on piety, on holiness, on the supernatural, on the profound inner core of what it is to be a Christian, in order, if for no other reason, than to stand up against the dead weight of critical secularism which has been experienced as an onslaught for decades now. But to do that, you can't afford this slow deterioration uh, in, into the, if you like, your, your enemy's worldview. Uh, so this may very well be a moment, I hope, when both the people and, and the priests and the bishops see that the course that they've been set on for the last 70 years is in fact a disastrous one and there has to be a reconfiguration in order to be true to Christ, to the faith, to the integrity of what it is to, to be a Christian and to be the church. But how do you make that happen? Bishops, by and large, don't listen to criticism. And even if they did, they've surrendered much of their authority to their bureaucratic minders. Well, I think I'm hoist by my own pious petard at the moment, because it's very tempting to answer the how in political or strategic terms. And that would be to, to, to fall into exactly the error that, that we've been 
criticizing uh, other people of succumbing to. Uh, I've thought for some time now that we're at an enormously important moment in history, equivalent to the Reformation in the 16th century. There needs to be a new Reformation in this century. It's almost as if, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not very sympathetic to the Reformation, but, but, but if one accepts its narrative for the moment, then it was preceded by, by a number of years of, 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 of decadence. Actually, of course, that's a, that's a bit of fake news. The 15th century was a profound period of spiritual flourishing. But but let's for a moment stick to the reformed narrative and, and say that, well, there were some things wrong and they were sufficiently wrong. They needed a, a considerable renewal, forgetting, in fact, that the, that the church has always had need of renewal and has always been renewed. Well, we're in one of those periods now. And the answer is it, it it's up to for, for Christians. It's up to God to do it. These things only happen uh, by by prayer and by penitence and by humility and by by longing for it we don't have a strategy there isn't anything any clever powerful intelligent person can do this is a matter of this inner world of piety of the supernatural of the spirit and i think what we, what we i hope will happen is that those who hold the faith will get on their knees and pray and pray for the renewal the reconfiguration the reformation of the production of a truly Christian culture in the face of this really damaging, hard-faced secularism that we've endured. Really, I mean, in fact, for the last 400 years, as, from, from, as the Age of Enlightenment began and cranked itself up, but especially in the last 100 years. And, and, and if we look to, to China or to Russia, I know I've said this before, but I think it bears saying again, what we see there is a renewal of the church of just this kind in the most unpropitious circumstances. And again, there's no political, intellectual or rational answer for it. It's a movement of the spirit. Uh, and it's that movement of the spirit we need in Europe. That's a very hopeful message, Gavin. But I can only say that such a move of the spirit will have to sweep away not only structures, useless structures like the Bishops' Conference of England and Wales and Bishops' Conferences and General Synods everywhere, but people too, bishops, a whole generation of bishops will have to go. Gavin Asherton, thank you very much. <laughs>